Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientists. I'm Dr Chris Smith, and also here with me this week is Dr Helen Scales. Hi, Helen. Hi. Now, this week, we're going to be finding out how a group of patients have suddenly lost their craving for cigarettes after they had a stroke, and we'll be finding out why. Also, why there's an increasing appetite for fish, and specifically live fish, and why that's devastating coral reefs. And we'll also be hearing how researchers have uncovered an Australian cave which has been hidden for half a million years, and it turns out that it's stuffed with pristine fossils. And we'll be finding out what the researchers discovered in that cave in just a few minutes' time. Helen. Also this week, extreme science. We'll be hearing from researcher Lisa Pratt about how she and her team have uncovered bacteria deep underground which get their energy from radioactivity. And Leeds University's Crispin Little will be introducing us to the incredible animals that live now and in the past in the near-boiling water temperatures at hydrothermal vents deep down on the ocean floor. And talking of hot water, this week's Kitchen Science will be looking at the extreme environment inside your dishwasher. And if you're in the mood to win something, I'm also giving away a copy of my new book, which is Naked Science. That's up for grabs. It's full of fun and funky science discoveries that we talk about here on The Naked Scientist. Plus, we've also got a copy of Giant Leaps, which is a new book recently published by The Sun newspaper and The Science Museum. And what they've done is to take some of our greatest discoveries and put them in the style of a sun headline and a sun front page. So, for instance, there's a picture of Archimedes discovering the principle of water displacement, jumping out of his bath naked, and the sun headline underneath says, You Streaker. So we've got a copy of that. It's absolutely fantastic reading. All you have to do to win is answer this simple question. What temperature does water boil at on the top of Mount Everest? The Naked Scientist Podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Now, interesting story that came out this week, Helen, was published in the journal Science, and uh, it's a group of researchers in the University of Iowa, and they found some patients who suddenly lost their craving for cigarettes after having had a stroke, and they wondered why, because they thought, well, is this the clue to where the brain's addiction centre is. Now, what these guys did, and it's a chap called Nazir Nakvi and his colleagues, they found 69 patients who'd all had strokes. 19 of them had had strokes in a part of the brain called the insula, which is a little island of tissue. It sits between the brain's frontal lobes at the front and the temporal lobes, which is the part of the brain that goes next to your ear. And it's the part of the brain which we think is involved in anticipating how the body will feel under certain circumstances. And why that might be significant is that when you 
damage it, which is what happened in these people who gave up smoking. They think that this meant that the body could no longer, or the brain could no longer predict or anticipate that the body was going to feel bad when it craved cigarettes, and so the people lost their motivation to want to smoke, because when they looked at the patients who'd had strokes in other parts of the brain, they didn't give up with the same rate. The, pe the people who were successful quitting smoking straight after having had a stroke all had damage in this region called the insular cortex. And why they think this might be significant is that it might give us clues as to how we could better tailor therapies to help people quit smoking in future because you could use brain scans and do various strategies to see if you could make people or put people off the idea of smoking and see what that bit of the brain's doing or also develop drugs which might be selectively able to in, in sort of inhibit or switch off that brain area so that people find it easier to quit. Sounds good to me. Well, this week I published a paper based on some of the research I did for my PhD and I was looking at the growing trend for eating fish that have been collected from coral reefs all around the world and are flown to major Asian cities and cooked alive in luxury restaurants and they sell for extremely high prices. Like what? Okay, so one of the big species I looked at was a species called the Napoleon rat, which I might have talked about before. These are beautiful big fish, one of the biggest ones to live on a coral reef. The sort of thing that scuba divers love to see if they go diving there. They're also um, called the Maori rat on there because they have that very right. interesting facial pattern. You yes, know, very that's instantly recognised. My aren't PhD they? as well, actually, was the facial patterns of Napoleon rats. But anyway, these fish, um, they can sell, I think one did sell for 10,000 US dollars. This was a large male, kind of two metres long. That's quite an extreme end of the scale, but they are really high priced. Um, and what I found was that for the first time, we've actually seen very clearly just how devastating this trade can be, including on these species like the Napoleon wrasse. Um, and I looked, basically, I was scrutinising the records that are kept by fish traders in Borneo. And I, and I discovered that within less than 10 years, the number of fish being caught by each fisherman had plummeted. And that's a really highly likely consequence of the wild stocks being depleted. So in other words, people are pillaging the reef, they're taking all the fish, and as a result, the numbers are just declining. That's right, there just isn't enough to, 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 to supply the demand that has for these fish in these restaurants. And we think, even though the study we looked at was just in Borneo, this is likely to happen, this drastic over-exploitation all the way across every country where the trade um, is happening, which is all the way across the Indian Pacific Oceans, it's huge trade, growing every year. But um, I have to say, I do hold out some hope that it's not all completely doom and gloom. This isn't just me being the harbinger of the end of the coral reefs, I think what we need to do is really think about how we can improve the situation by really focusing on increasing awareness among consumers about where fish, these fish that they're eating, where do they come from? And also by encouraging countries to cooperate and try and make sure that the numbers of fish that are being traded don't exceed levels that the reefs can sustainably provide. Isn't a part of this that people tend to go for the biggest, juiciest fish because obviously they want to, to get the most meat off of the fish. And they're the fittest, and they're going to have the most fertile offspring, and they're going to have the most offspring. And as a result, you're literally biting at the very thing that's going to, or destroying the very thing that's going to, to give you a future, a sustainable future, because if you take those fish away, there's nothing to repopulate the reef. Yeah, you're right. That's absolutely right. Actually, the thing with this trade is there's two fish that are caught, really big ones, which are very, as you say, very attractive, but also smaller fish that fit on a single plate. And they're, in this case, juveniles before they've had a chance to reproduce. So you're hitting the population both at a time when they're most reproductive and before they even had a chance to reproduce at all. It's worrying stuff, isn't it? Now, to, let's take a look into sort of man's effects on the climate and the world in the past, because a very interesting study has been, has been published in the journal Nature this week by a researcher from Australia called Gavin Predo. And what he did was to go to an area in south-central Australia called the Nullarbor Plain, and, and that literally means 
no trees. And the reason it's called the Nullarbor Plain is because there are no trees there. Now, there's a cave there which is in the limestone which underlies that region, which has been sealed off for thousands of years. And someone discovered it very, very recently. And when they ventured into this cave, into this cave they found a site for sore eyes because it was probably the most pristine collection of fossils that Australia has ever seen. And the reason it's so important is that the animals, when they normally fall into caves and things, either get washed in there by a flood or they fall in and they all fall on top of each other or they all get knocked to pieces or predators get in and, and scatter the bones everywhere. But in this particular cave, the researchers were lucky because when the animals fell in, they didn't die. So they survived for a little while and they were able to hop around and crawl off to somewhere else in the cave and that's where their remains were found. So the specimens they found, over about 80 mammalian and bird and reptile species, perfect condition, these fossils in there. And when they analyse the ground around them, it goes back at least 750,000 years, maybe longer. Why am I telling you this? Because they found eight new species of kangaroo, including some tree kangaroos, and a lot of these species are not known anymore because they've become extinct. Why am I telling you this? Well, it's important because this area of Australia couldn't possibly have supported massive animals like that, some of them two or three hundred kilos in weight, because there just isn't the vegetation there to do so. So what were they doing there? Was this area very lush and fertile and covered in trees previously and now isn't? Must be. So where have all those trees gone? Has the climate changed very catastrophically? You'd think, well, maybe that's why. Maybe the climate's changed. But then when they said, well, let's have a look at the teeth of these animals, because teeth lock away isotopes or forms of elements that can tell you about the climate in the past. And they looked at the enamel on the teeth. And what it says is that the amount of rainfall, the water, the climate in that area of Australia has not changed. So where have all the trees gone? And if you look carefully, you'll find that about 40,000 years ago, there was a very abrupt extinction of a lot of these types of animals. And that coincides perfectly with the first arrival of humans in Australia's south-central area. So it looks like that mankind turned up in Australia, they started setting fire to all of the bush in order to burn all these nasty grasses and things and trees out of the way that weren't very nice to walk on. This killed all of the plants that were extremely sensitive to fire and the consequence of that was that it left a desert behind and species that couldn't live in that desert perished. Incredible stuff to think it was such a different place than uh, we imagined that the red-hot continent is today. I've got a very quick story here. Um, when the Wright brothers first flew an aeroplane in 1903, it was seen as a masterful invention that would take humans into the skies, and indeed it did. But in fact, the idea of using biplane wings might have already been around for millions of years. Dinosaurs called Microraptors lived in the Cretaceous period, around 125 million years ago, and are thought to be some of the closest relatives to all the modern birds we see today. But, unlike pelicans and penguins, these Microraptors had two sets of wings, with large flight feathers stuck to their legs. And scientists used to think that Microraptors held these two sets of wings in a line like a dragonfly. But recently, a team of researchers from Texas Tech University in Lubbock think that... It's, this could only have been possible if these flying creatures dislocated their hips. So instead, a new idea is that they actually held their wings one above another, like a biplane, and this would probably have improved, improved their gliding abilities, supporting the theory that bird flight began when dinosaurs jumped out of the trees and glided gracefully to the ground. Well, it remains a mystery, which is going to have to take a little bit more solving, I think, and a few more specimens. Tis the Naked Scientist with 
Dr Chris Smith, that's me, and Dr Helen Scales. We're exploring the science of the extreme this week and we'll be looking at the extreme conditions inside your dishwasher on Kitchen Science coming up very shortly. But before then, we'll be talking with Dr Crispin Little from the University of Leeds about the deep sea floor, hydrothermal vents and the incredible organisms that live there and have lived there in the past. And we'll also be joining Lisa Pratt, who's a researcher at the University of Indiana in America, where she's been fishing around at the bottom of a gold mine in South Africa, three kilometres underground, and found a population of bacteria powered by nothing more than radiation. The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. You're listening to The Naked Scientists. Now, I've got an email here from Irene Chen, who says, Hi, my name is Irene. I'm a pre-medical student writing from Columbia University in New York City. Hi, Irene. Thanks so much for your message. She says, uh, oh, she loves the podcast, quizzes, and wishes she could listen to it live so she could have a go herself. But uh, her question, it concerns laptop mouse pads and the scroller wheels on iPods. I don't actually have an iPod myself. Do you have one, Chris? Actually, I know. We make an amazing science podcast, and I don't have, I don't have a, I mean, I have. I have an MP3 player, but not of that particular brand, I suppose. I'm not quite so expensive. I go for a cheaper one. But she wants to know, um, how do these um, sensor pads... It, how do they feel our sense of touch? What's doing the sensing? Now, oh, I never I really thought of it. Yes, the little thing on the front of the, mm. the laptop where you move yeah. your, your finger around and it moves the pointer on the screen. It's electrically sensitive. It uses capacitance. In other words, how much charge you can store in a certain area of the pad to work out where your finger must be going. Because what it's, what it's got is a matrix or an array of wires running in one direction and another direction. So it can l- literally use the X and Y to work out where your finger must be. When you put your finger on, you need to have good electrical contact between your finger and the pad and what this then does is work out how much charge is effectively stored on that spot and when you move your finger it's sensing how the the charged stored moves across the pad and it resolves that to a direction and translates it into the movement of the pointer on the screen. I see, because I find if you have slightly sweaty hands, it doesn't work quite so well. Do you think that's something to do with it? <laughs> if you're uh, a bit hot and sticky? Well, yeah, if, if it's too wet, it can fool it. And also mm. if you wear gloves. So if you're in, in your laboratory and you put your gloves on, uh, it'll, it'll have a job because it doesn't get a very good electrical contact because, of course, gloves are an insulator if they're plastic. Of course. Oh, of course. Ingenious. Now, I've got an email here from Anne, and she says, um, Dear Chris and everyone at The Naked Scientist, uh, I have finally listened to all of your podcasts in order from the very beginning. You should do a segment sometime on obsessive-compulsive disorder. You're my favourite podcast. She's referring to the fact that if you miss our programme, you can go to our website, which is nakedscientist.com, and you can download the uh, every edition we've ever made, actually, of this programme and listen to it in your own time. You don't need a computer. You can do it on your MP3 player if you've got one of those. But she says, You're my number one favourite podcast. I love the variety of things that you talk about. Um, then she then goes on to say, um, in a, one of your previous shows, there was something you were talking about uh, seeing rainbows at night, and she says, I lived for a few years in Maui, Hawaii, and I can tell you that moonbows are definitely real. The ambient light is very low on much of the island. In fact, there's an observatory at the top of Heliakala, which is the volcano there. And she says, one night when I was halfway up the volcano, the moon was full and there was just the right amount of moisture in the air to create a gorgeous, pale, but fully visible double rainbow it was incredible. That sounds fantastic. I've just had a text message here from Bob in Ipswich, and he wants to say, he says, can we explain why when you go outside and the temperature is 27 degrees, you feel hot, and yet when you get into water that's the same temperature, you feel quite cold? 
Any ideas? I think it's to do with the, the conduction, actually. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, uh, I mean, you, you spend a lot of time in the water, haven't I you? I do. 27 diver. degrees for me, is, it's, it's not too bad. I prefer about 30. <laughs> and then I don't have to wear a wetsuit, and that's nice and nice and cosy. But 27 does get a bit cooler. Um, and yes, it is it's about the conductivity of water, and it conducts heat um, much more readily than it does in air. So it's simply kind of sucking the, temp- the heat out of your body, and that's why you feel, you feel colder, I think. I think, think that's right, because if you think about wind chill, as an example, you go out in the Antarctic, if you've got a very still day and it's minus 30 degrees if you take your shirt off you don't actually feel that freezing a cold because until the, the wind moves because it's the movement of the wind past you the air running past you means that the molecules of air passing your body are each stealing a little bit of the energy from the surface of your body if you replace those molecules very frequently i.e it's windy each of those things is, is pulling energy away from your body and you cool down much quicker that's the basis of wind chill put yourself in the water if you're not wearing a wetsuit which traps a layer of water next to your skin which warms up and therefore isn't being changed and keeps you insulated if you're just in the water with water going past your body it's, it's robbing your body of energy all the time and cooling you down so what they say, you know, if, if in the cold weather you fall in, you, you're, you're ice skating on a pond and you go through the ice, or you're on a boat and you have to jump into the sea and you want to get rescued, should you swim because doing exercise makes energy, makes you hot, or do you stay still? I don't actually know the answer to that. I just thought, well, if you're moving, then does it pump the, um, your blood to your extremities and that's a bad thing because you actually lose more heat um, rather than keeping it in your core sort of central... Don't uh, quite torso. a lot of work on this because they want to know what's the best advice to give yeah. people who are in that position. The answer is don't take your clothes off because they behave a bit like a wetsuit and yeah, trap a layer of water that, yeah. and don't move don't because move. you push okay. more water yeah. through you and that cools mm. you down more. So it's better oh, course, to, to, yeah. to minimise your surface area. So form, form a smaller mm. surface area in contact with the water that you can, keep your clothes on and try and keep as still as possible because then you will lose heat most slowly and this should enable you to survive or as do what i do which is tend to try and work in the tropical hot water but now it's time for science update and a weekly dose of science from across the ocean a cold ocean as it is as well as like we've been saying but this week bob and chelsea find out about life on mars how squirrels and spruce trees are caught up in a bit of a scuffle this week for the naked scientists squirrels locked in a life and death struggle with spruce trees But first, Chelsea has this report on a new theory of how life could exist in the extreme conditions of Mars. Despite some curious data, most scientists believe the Viking missions of the 70s didn't find signs of life on Mars. But now astrobiologist Dirk Schultz-McCook of Washington State University says the data may suggest life of a different kind. On Earth, life is based on water, which would freeze on Mars. But Schultz-McCook points out that life based on a mix of water and hydrogen peroxide could survive. The hydrogen peroxide water solution is actually quite neat in that way that it would allow near-surface life on Mars at current conditions. And not only that, it would explain nicely the Viking results. If this sort of life does exist, and it's still a huge if, he suspects it would be tiny and single-celled. He adds that the experiments Viking performed not only would have missed this life, they almost certainly would have killed it. Thanks, Chelsea. Well, it's not as sensational a survival story as life on Mars or at the bottom of the ocean, but the red squirrel and the white spruce are locked in an epic battle over seeds. Scientists thought the tree had found a winning tactic, starve the squirrels of seeds for several years, and then produce a bumper crop just when its enemies' numbers are low. But ecologist Stan Booten of the University of Alberta says even that wasn't enough. The squirrel has countered this strategy, we found, by actually anticipating when the trees are going to produce the big amounts of seed and producing another litter of babies 
to take advantage of that upcoming seed. So in some ways, the squirrels have uh, produced a counter-strike against this strategy by the trees. And as in all great epics, the protagonist's downfall is of his own making. Putin says the tree may inadvertently reveal its intentions to the squirrel through the hormones in its buds. Thanks, Bob. Next time, we'll join in the discussion about pain and suffering. We hope without causing you any. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald. And I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, Naked Scientists. Thank you, Bob and Chelsea. And if you want to hear more from the Science Update crew, you can always head over to their website, which is at scienceupdate.com. And remember, we are asking you today for our teaser question. If you were at the top of Mount Everest and you wanted to have a cup of tea, how hot would your water have to be to make it boil? If you think you know, um, send us... Well, first of all, I'm actually going to say... You could take on the tactic of one of our listeners who has apparently emailed, texted in virtually every degree of temperature between 0 and 100. I have in front of me quite a range. And I think that's cheating, actually. Simbar Simba Rainmaker is the name on this. And I have to say, um, nice try. We'll put you in the hat and we'll see. But I don't know if you get all these, you know, chances on each one of these. It's a bit cheeky. But um, Rowena and Rowena in Malden was much better and it just sent us one, to, uh, one email and she was somewhere along the right lines. But if you think you know, and possibly narrow it down a bit more than <laughs> giving us a range. So that shows dedication, doesn't it, if nothing else? Uh, yes, I think I must say. Thank you. Thanks for that. Um, but do give us a call on 08459 25000. Send us a text message to maybe, maybe not 100, um, 07786 201960 and send us uh, emails, chris at com. So that's if you know what temperature water will boil at the top of Mount Everest. I've got a text message here from Peter, who's in Black Notley, Helen. He says, what causes my manure heap to heat up and to steam when it's decomposing? Oh, it's all about bacteria, isn't it? I can't remember the exact name of the type of bacteria that live in, in compost heaps and are doing essentially what you want it to do, which is break down your um, organic waste into, you know, compost is the word, but stuff you can shove back on your roses to make them grow nicely. Um, and just in the fact that they're breaking down those organic compounds and they generate heat in the process. Yeah, in the there... same way that you know, when our body's metabolising things, mm. uh, these chemical reactions that are going on are creating heat, uh, mainly in our liver. That's, that's a huge source of, of energy uh, production in the body. Then the manure heap's the same. It's a thriving community of microbes and the chemical reactions that they're, they're taking on are producing heat as a byproduct. I think if you look at, say, a farmer's barn, you can find similar things happening in hay and straw bales. They have various moulds and fungi and, and other bacteria that thrive in there, and, and they can start fires because it can get so hot. Laying the facts bare, the Naked Scientists. It's the Naked Scientists with Dr Chris and with Dr Helen. And Chris Mindell's here from the University of Leeds. Hi, Chris Bin. Hello. Thank you for coming in. Now, you're interested in a hydrothermal vent, but some people may not know what that is. So could you just tell us a little bit about the geology first of what these things are? Well, it's a pretty simple system, really. Um, what you have is a huge underwater range of mountains on the sea floor where new ocean crust is being formed. And these are longer than any mountain chain on the planet's surface. And at these sites, because you have new ocean crust being formed, you have heat, basically you have magma under the ground and that rises to form via lava to form new ocean crust. And at the same time, of course, you have water because you have oceans sitting on top of these huge underwater volcanic uh, mountains. So what happens is that water seeps down, seawater seeps down, and it gets heated up by the heat, the magma chambers underneath the ground. And as it gets heated up, it reacts with new volcanic rock and it takes on a whole load of different chemical compounds including hydrogen sulfide which is very important and a lot of metals as well particularly iron and copper and lead and zinc 
And because it's hot and buoyant, it rises back onto the sea floor and it jets out in certain places at these mid-ocean ridges to form big deposits of sulphide minerals in particular. And the water which gushes out, it's interesting you were talking about the heat or near boiling. Well, if this water was gushing out onto the land surface, it most certainly would be boiling because it's up to 400 degrees centigrade. It doesn't boil on the surface of the uh, sea floor because it's under extreme pressure. In some places, like the cruise I was on recently, we were diving in two, uh, 2,500 metres of water, so two and a half kilometres, and that's a lot of pressure sitting on top of this vent fluid, so it stops it boiling. So it's a pretty simple system ge- in, in terms of its geological uh, process of formation. And so this is a massive source of energy, and both chemical energy and thermal energy, on the seabed. So there are now organisms which can exploit that. I say now, I mean, you know, organisms have evolved over the course of millions of years to exploit that. Indeed, and in fact there's evidence, some people suggest that life itself may have started at hydrothermal vents in the first place because these things are essentially pressure cookers of organic compounds. So it's a, it, it's a system which has been going on for billions of years in the world's oceans Life may have started there, and certainly it's, a, it's an amazing site for all sorts of different microbes today. What sort of life do we, if we went down, and uh, we can tell us what it's like to go down to these vents, but what, what will we see? What kind of animals and plants, creatures, what lives down there? Well, certainly no plants, because remember, it's completely black, as black as black can be. Um, what you see is uh, very specialised communities of animals which can live at these hydrothermal vent sites in what pretty challenging fluid because not only is it extremely hot, the hottest parts, but it also has no oxygen in it and it also can be very acidic as well. So it's pretty unpleasant stuff. But it does have a huge number of reduced chemical compounds in the fluid and if you can combine those compounds with oxygen for example you can release a lot of energy and that's the basis of these communities are they just so, microbes well been, or are we talking bigger animals no there are there are bigger animals uh, uh, the, the first thing that you'll see if you dive on the vent communities in the pacific ocean for example the east pacific ocean are these very big tube worms uh, and uh, these tube worms called riftia it's the giant tube worm it's the it's the most charismatic beast is uh, up to three meters long Really, really big beast. And not only can they grow three metres long, but they can grow that big in a couple of years. So they are very, very fast-growing But, but what are they eating? Well, the intriguing thing about them is as adults, they don't have a functioning gut at all. They don't have a mouth, they don't have digestive tract, they don't have an anus. And what they have is the body is largely composed of what's essentially a bacteria farm. So they have billions and billions of little symbiotic bacteria And the bacteria are using hydrogen sulfide from the vent fluid for their energy source. And the the, uh, tube worm, it brings hydrogen sulfide from the vent fluid and oxygen in its blood to these bacteria farms in the body. And then the bacteria combine these two things, the oxygen and hydrogen sulfide, to release energy. And then the animal utilises the bacteria, probably by eating them directly. So where do the bacteria live and exist in relation to the worm? Are they on the surface, or does the worm have special pouches to keep them in? Um, it's, it's actually it's a, it's an organ called the trophosome. The name's not really important, but it's actually uh, formed from skin cells. But it's internal to the animal's body. It's not on the outside. 
It reminds me a bit of ants, which are the leafcutter ants that farm fungi, and they have special pores, each fed by its own sweat gland, which nourishes a certain strain of bacteria, which pump out a, a form of uh, antibiotic, if you like. It's an antibiotic, terrible joke, but uh, these ants can then distribute this around their nest to get rid of the fungi. So similarly, you've got worms which have specialised structures that can accommodate these hydrogen sulphide-loving bacteria, which in return for the accommodation give back something to the worms. Exactly, exactly. And in fact, it's not only the giant tube worms that can do this. There are two different sorts of bivalve shells, the giant mussel, the vent mussel, and uh, the vent clam, which also do similar things. But here, the bacteria are in the gill tissues. So the gills are normally what bacteria or the bivalves use to filter feed. But in this case, they're taken up entirely by having these symbiotic bacteria in their tissues. So the gills are extremely large indeed for normal deep-sea bivalves. Why are they so big? Because there doesn't seem to be an obvious advantage to be so big, because when you're a big animal in the sea and things find it harder to hunt you, that's an advantage. But in something like this, where chemicals are just the, the thing that drives your existence, is there an advantage to being huge? Well, I suppose so. Firstly, because you can have more symbiotic bacteria. And the thing is, the the energy available is almost indefinite. There's, there's just more energy than you can make use of. So the larger you are, the more bacteria you have in your bacteria farm, the better. Some people have said, though, that uh, whilst we've argued that this is evidence that life could exist on other planets, because if you can get a very, very specialised system or ecosystem like this on the bottom of the sea where the energy supply comes just from the heat of the planet, uh, this means that if you could find another planet somewhere else in the solar system with similar environment, you could have life there. But then others have come along and said, well, that's all very well, but there are still elements to that that sort of ecosystem which rely on energy input from the sun things which which have to be powered by the sun and and they contribute to it and if you took the sun away they they wouldn't survive um i think the the if you look down at the bottom of the food chain here to the bacteria and and the archaea this other kingdom of life that you have uh, amongst very small prokaryotic beasts small beasts then I can't see why you couldn't have a similar system on other planets because really the, the starting process, all you need is water, a heat source and, and some rock to react with the water. And in fact, you can have that on any rocky planet. But where do you think these worms came from? Because the, the bacteria that nourish them is one thing, but these worms are obviously very, very specialised organisms. Well, if you have a look at their genes, for example, they seem to fit quite nicely into polychaete um, worms. So the things like the ragworm, for example, would be, uh, would be an animal in this group. Um, so it, while they are pretty specialised, uh, they seem to have rather mundane origins. But we find fossils going back into the geological record that look pretty similar indeed, almost as, well, it's uh, 430 million years old is our oldest example. So similar sorts of beasts have been around for a very long period of time at vent sites. So uh, I was going to say that uh, Chrisman's actually a paleontologist, so um, I guess your interest is, is largely in what used to be there on these mid-ocean mid vents and in the process of fossilisation. And I believe you've recently come back from a trip to the Pacific, and uh, I wonder what you were doing during that trip out into the ocean. Well, the, the reason for going out on a cruise to modern hydrothermal vent sites is that I'm very interested in the process of fossilisation. So we find fossils of these things back in the geological record, but I don't really know how the process occurs. No one does. So the, the reason for going out on a modern cruise is to actually do some experiments on the seafloor and just see what this actual process is by looking at modern sites. Were you exploring these vents remotely or were you actually in some kind of submersible that would take you personally down to see them? 
Well, unfortunately, not me personally on this trip, but yes, <laughs> yeah, we were using the deep-sea submersible Alvin, which, of course, is a very famous vehicle. It's the one which uh, was used to discover the Titanic and the Bismarck and actual hydrothermal vents were first discovered by Alvin back in 1977. So uh, we were taking uh, Alvin down, and uh, the, it has two, three people on board, the pilot and then a port and a starboard observer who actually direct the science on the trip. So they actually were going down in the submersible and they were putting experiments down on the event sites and then bringing other stuff up and collecting chimneys and collecting animals. And the, uh, they were diving each day on the, on the research trip that I was going on. And what were the experiments you were doing? Well, my experiments uh, were um, a relatively simple system. I have a, a titanium mesh cage box uh, with a, a base 12 centimetres across uh, and uh, six centimetres high, and inside that titanium mesh cage, I wire up different things that I want to test to see how they become mineralised. So I have tube worms, I have bits of shells from gastropods and bivalves, I've got a bit of shrimp carapace, so a, 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 um, a shrimp shell, and then some control materials as well. So each one of these titanium mesh cages is identical, and the idea is to put those onto hydrothermal vent sites as well as control sites as well, and just see how quickly this process occurs. Because it's quite quick, isn't it? Is that the, that's the key that we're looking at, fossilisation happening far quicker than anywhere else in the world, really. Exactly. It's going to be nothing like our normal process of fossilisation which occurs in sediments, which we think could take hundreds or thousands or millions of years. This thing happens really quickly, and we know that, because if you look at some of the animal tubes of the worms that build their tubes on the outside of the mineral chimneys that you get down there, the animals are still living in the tubes where part of the tubes is actually becoming fossilised. So it's a process which occurs during the life of the animal, which is really pretty extraordinary. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work? Mm -hmm. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. This week we're, we're exploring the science of extreme organisms and joining us from the University of Indiana is Lisa Pratt. Hello, Lisa. Hello, Chris. Hello, Helen. Nice to have you on The Naked Scientist, Lisa. Could Good you tell us here. a little bit about the uh, bacteria that you've been looking at, please? Well, this is an organism that uh, we sampled uh, from water that was intersected in a very deep gold mine in South Africa. Uh, it, it requires a whole team of people to collect these samples and a lot of cooperation with the mine owners and the mine operators. So when under mining operations, they, uh, they have a water intersection. Uh, oftentimes this water is, is at very high pressure and very hot. Um, they get in touch with uh, scientists who are interested in studying that water and studying the possibility of organisms living there. We come in um, once the water flow has slowed down enough to be safe. We take samples. We concentrate the, the organisms on filters, and then we, we uh, ship those samples out to labs around the world and have a look at them. And in this case, uh, a water sample collected, as you said a minute ago, uh, almost three kilometers below the surface, 2.8, uh, yielded uh, a very interesting uh, community of organisms, but with a single dominant bacteria that uh, is making its living doing uh, sulfate reduction, which in many ways is is uh, just the opposite of the chemical reaction that Crispin was talking about a minute ago on the seafloor. So how do you think these bacteria got there? Because it's not trivial for some bacteria to be in water three kilometers underground that's at high pressure and temperature. 
No, indeed. But we assume that they get there much as organisms in the present day move into the subsurface. They they gradually move downward with descending groundwater. Um, the, the circulation is very slow, so by the time they get down several kilometers below the surface, they've they've probably been in transit for uh, tens of millions of years and 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 have been isolated from their surface relatives for an extended period of time. How long do you think these guys were isolated from the rest of the world? Well, in this particular water sample, um, we've we've estimated its its age, looking at the concentration of various noble gases, and it appears to be something um, in the neighborhood of sixteen to twenty five million years old. So this water has been cut off from the outside world for sixteen to twenty five million years, but it's still got loads of bacteria thriving in it. Yes. So just what's right. what's powering them? Well, that, that's a tough question because when we, uh, when we realized that these were sulfate-reducing organisms, we, of course, then went looking for a source of sulfate. Now, that's a very common ion in seawater, but there's uh, no way that we could imagine the seawater um, getting into this deep part of the basin. Um, it could also come from dissolving ancient salt deposits, but the rocks that these uh, bacteria are in do not contain evaporitic uh, salt-like minerals. So we started looking for another another chemical pathway, and because these deposits are both rich in gold and rich in uranium, uh, we came to the rather uh, startling conclusion that most likely uh, this, was, this was sulfate that uh, resulted from radiolysis of water, which is the splitting of water molecules, and then the reaction between those fragments of water and the mineral pyrite, which is an iron sulfide mineral. So what splits the water molecules in the first place, Lisa? Well, when of course, we all hear a lot about the radioactive decay of, of uranium, and this process goes on. Rather, it's concentrated in the core of a nuclear reactor or still dispersed as uranium-bearing minerals in the subsurface. So here, the uranium is, is present as a natural part of these sedimentary deposits. The uranium is undergoing radioactive decay, and it is releasing uh, high-energy particles, and, and those are, are that ionizing radiation is actually tearing through the water and breaking water molecules apart and creating um, hydrogen peroxide and hydrogen gas. And we think it's the hydrogen peroxide that then reacts with the pyrite. Do you think that these organisms can teach us anything about, A, the possibility that life could have evolved independently on other planets which have a radioactive core or radioactive elements in their core, a bit like the Earth does? And, and two, can we learn anything from these extreme organisms about ways to, to get energy out of things like this? Well, I, I think the answer to both questions is, uh, is yes. Um, we, we have never before thought in terms of, of radiolysis of water as a source of energy to sustain organisms. So that's a very exciting discovery. And it, it, it suggests that even if you had a planetary, a planetary body very distant from its associated star, too distant to really rely on photosynthesis, you might have organisms that instead um, were relying on this chemical energy caused by radioactive decay. And then in terms of what it tells us about Earth, I think it reminds us that we we know very little about the extreme environments on Earth, and we uh, we still have much to learn about our own planet. How do you know that these bacteria that you've isolated were genuinely in the water that came out of this crack? How do you know that the water that you collected wasn't just contaminated from elsewhere in the mine when you broke, o broke open that sealed-off bit of water? 
always always a tough question when we're working in these deep subsurface environments, especially when we're working in mines. But in this case, the the types of organisms that are present in the intersected water are distinct from the organisms that are present in the water that is utilized by the mine from surface sources. So it has a a distinct phylogeny. Um, its its um, its genes are different than its nearest surface relatives, and the amount of of uh, of organisms that are there are consistent with their being sourced from these these deep sequestered waters. That's Lisa Pratt from the University of Indiana. Lisa, thank you very much for joining us to talk about your work. You're welcome. Thank you for asking me. So Naked Scientists with Dr Chris and Dr Helen, we're talking about the science of the extreme, in other words, organisms that can tolerate very, very bizarre circumstances and living conditions. If you'd like to ask, uh, not just students in Cambridge, if you'd like to ask us any questions about that, uh, 08459 25 2000. Chris Little from the University of Leeds is here in the studio to take your questions. You can email in chris at nakedscientist.com or text in on 07786 201960. And those are the numbers and the info you need if you want to answer our teaser question this week, which is what temperature does water boil at at the top of Mount Everest and the text message has been flooding in including this one which is rather nice from Negin in London who was our winner last week he also got pretty close to this week's question so you better get in there and make sure he doesn't win two weeks in a row but he does say thank you very much for the amazing book Naked Scientist which has occupied him all week I'm glad it's made someone happy. Now, uh, it's time now to catch up with what's going on in the kitchen because after, a looking, after looking at life in some very hot environments, we're now going to take a look at the environment inside a steamy dishwasher. So let's go to a kitchen in Cambridge where Derek is with Hugh, Hugh Hunt, Ali and Sandy and they're going to tell us all about it. Hi, guys. Hello there. Welcome to Hugh Hunt's kitchen where we've come. We're in Cambridge today and uh, Hugh Hunt, who's been on The Naked Scientist before, of course, is, uh, is, is, has kindly welcomed us into his kitchen and uh, we're going to be doing an experiment with some volunteers here. How are you doing anyway? Very well, thank you. Okay, good stuff. So we'll be getting lots of explanations from you on our experiment today, and the experiment will concern many things, including the space shuttle and dishwashers. So uh, watch out for that. We'll be explaining some stuff about dishwashers. Now then, uh, we've also got two fantastic helpers here, so I wonder if you guys could tell me your names and your ages, please. So, uh, firstly, yourself. I'm Ali, and I'm nine years old. I'm Sandy, and I'm nine years old. Okay, thanks very much for coming down, guys. And just quickly, I've got to ask you about science, because we're going to do some science today. Uh, Ali, what is it you like about science? Um, I like the blowing things up part and the um, electricity. All right, okay, that sounds great. And uh, also for you, Sandy, what about you? I like boomerangs and blowing things up, as Ali said. All right, OK. <laughs> There's generally, I think we've got about 90% of all boys we have on here like blowing things up. So there we go. It's in demand. Anyway, so what we're going to be looking at today is all to do with dishwashers, firstly. And also we're going to be looking at something about the space shuttle. But uh, we're here in Hugh Hunt's kitchen and Hugh has had the dishwasher on. So, Hugh, I wonder if you could instruct uh, Ali and Sandy to, um, well, what would you like them to do? Well, I would like Ali and Sandy to open the dishwasher because in there are various things, cups and plates, some plastic and some made of crockery, and we're going to have a look at which ones are dry and which ones are not dry. OK, right. So, um, Sandy, if you'd like to pull open that dishwasher there. Oh, good effort. OK, there you go. Well, right, now... big and steamy. Yeah, here we go. Now, if you could um, pull out the top drawer for us. Now, Ali, on that, there's a blue plastic mug right at the front there. Now, what, what can you see on the top of that? Water. All right, then. Now, the thing is that the, the mug here is actually, uh, as, as it were, upside down because that's kind of the way that everyone puts stuff into their dishwasher. So, basically, we've got the underside of this, this plastic cup with a bit of water on it. So, Sandy, there's also a mug in there which is turned upside down. So, could you just touch the, the top of that and tell us what you feel? Dry. 
All right, so we've got a dry mug there, OK, and, and that's just a, a typical China mug. OK, now the thing is, of course, that when, uh, if you're anything like me, then when you take stuff out of the dishwasher and it's plastic, you often have water on there and it kind of drips all over your socks. So, Hugh, why is it then that, that these plastic things have still got some water on, on the top, as in on the underside of them? Well, they're all wet to start with, so they've all got more or less the same amount of water on them. Um, but the thing about plastic is that it's lighter and we generally make plastic things thinner. So there's less material there. There's less material to store heat. So when the dishwasher gets all hot at the end of its cycle, it relies on the fact that the plates retain heat and that heat gradually is used to, to evaporate the water. OK, so at the end of a dishwasher cycle, we've got a load of things in there that are all, what, the same temperature, basically, and they've all got a bit of water on them as well? Yeah, they're all at the same temperature, but the, uh, a plate or a mug might have ten times more heat stored in it than the plastic cup. So, so does that explain it all, then? Well, but, well there is one, one other thing. Uh, what I've just been talking about is heat capacity, but there's another thing to do with heat conductivity. Now, if you imagine that actually down the sides of the cup, remember the cup is upside down, there's a lot of heat stored down the sides of the cup. Now, in a china cup, uh, the heat will conduct quite well up the walls and up to where the water is so that all the heat that's stored in the walls of the cup can also be used to evaporate the water. But in a plastic cup, we know that plastic is not a very good conductor. We can, we can touch a plastic, a hot plastic object doesn't conduct heat very well. That heat that's stored in the walls of the plastic cup won't conduct its way up the walls of the cup to where the water is. So we've only got a very small amount of hot plastic uh, right where the water is to evaporate all that water, whereas the entire china cup can be used to evaporate the water. OK, fantastic. So there you go, that's all explained. But we do also want to explain some other stuff. So what have we got in the oven? Well, in the oven, it was, it, I had the oven turned on to 100 degrees, which is not very hot, but I put a plate in there with a piece of bread on top of it. And Ali, would you like to open the oven and let's see what's in there? Um, what have we got? We've got some bread and a plate that it's on. Now, Ali, would you like to pick up the piece of bread? What, is, it, is it hot or what? Mm, it's kind of hot, but I can pick it up easily. And, Ali, does that surprise you at all? Mm, I thought it'd be a bit hotter. Yeah, OK, because the thing is, like, when you normally put stuff in the oven, I mean, what are you meant to do, Sandy, when you put stuff in the oven and then you take it out? What do you put on your hands when you, when you uh, take something out of the oven? You put mitten gloves, things. Yeah, exactly, because, you know, you've got to make sure that you don't burn your hands because all the stuff in the oven is, you know, hot, basically. But Ali's just picked up that piece of bread and he's holding it in his hand and, yeah, so, so what's going on there then, Hugh? Well, um, the, the bread actually is not a very good uh, thermal conductor and because it's very porous, it's full of lots of air, it uh, doesn't store much heat. Um, whereas the plate that the, that the bread was sitting on actually is, is too hot to pick up. You wouldn't. You know you wouldn't take a plate out of the oven with your bare hands. You'd put your oven gloves on. So um, this starts to make you think, well, can we use this property to a good end? And the thermal tiles on the space shuttle uh, they are very lightweight, very porous, and they have a very low thermal conductivity. And so that means that actually the outside of the space shuttle on re-entry can be thousands of degrees centigrade, glowing red hot, but the inside is cool enough to touch. So basically, does that mean if you took a chunk of that ceramic stuff from, you know, the space shuttle and put it in, a, in an oven that's actually, you know, let's say way hotter than this, like a furnace, could you still pick it up? 
Well, that's an experiment that uh, the people from NASA will gladly do. Uh, they will put a, a, get a piece of the ceramic tile and they will blast a blowtorch on it for several minutes and it's glowing red hot and then the lab technician will simply pick it up with his fingers. All right, well, that's it from us in Hugh Hunt's kitchen in Cambridge. So thanks very much for that and thanks to Ali and Sandy and we'll be back soon. So see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you very much to Derek. Right, OK, a couple of quick questions that you can help us out with here. Helen, this is from Tara. She says, I'm a big fan of your show. I have a question um, I think could even become a kitchen science experiment. The other day I was putting water onto boil for tea and I filled the pot with hot water and my boyfriend told me he learned that cold water actually boils faster than hot water. Is this true? And if so, why? Thank you very much. Um, I think the answer to your question is almost certainly no, it is not true. Um, you're heating water up in the kettle, that's the whole point. If it's hot already, you've got less work to do. I can't possibly think where, why heating cold water would be quicker than heating water that's already some way towards being boiled already. So no, <laughs> I really don't know. Steve's listening in sunny Norfolk as he describes it. I think he might be being facetious there. He says, Dear Dr Chris, a great show, thank you very much. Uh, now he says... I recently bought a kettle. In the instructions, it says you shouldn't boil the water more than once. Can I ask, do you have any idea why? Again, I'm not quite sure. I, I've heard, possibly, no-one else in the studio seems to agree with me, but I've heard that to make a really good cup of tea, you should draw fresh water, and this, it won't taste so good next time it's been boiled. Crispin had an idea about um, removing of salts every time it's boiled. What was that you were saying? Yeah, well, it may be that uh, you boil off a small amount of water, then you uh, you have less volume, but you don't lose the salt. So essentially, right. you're concentrating the salt so each time you boil the same water. Yeah, or well, particularly the carbonates, the bicarbonates, which which fur up your uh, your element. I don't think it matters that much, though. <laughs> Thank you very much, Chris. Crispin is the Naked Scientist with Chris and Helen. We're talking about the science of the extreme and in a second we'll be joining Steve Scott from the University of Toronto to tell us how miners are now very interested in these hydrothermal vents because they're very rich in ore. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the Naked Scientists. Earlier in the show, we've heard from Crispin about hydrothermal vents provide home and a source of food to a range of unique species, but researchers are also now looking at these vents as potential sources of minerals and metals. So, here's Steve Scott, University of Toronto. He's a professor of ore genesis, and he's going to tell us all about it. The deep sea occupies a big part of our planet. I mean, the oceans are 71% of our, of our planet, and the deep sea is about, about 80% of that. So... There's a lot of secrets in the deep ocean that we're just beginning to understand, and one of these is the hot springs on the uh, deep ocean floor that are spewing out fluids at temperatures as high as 420 degrees centigrade. And in these fluids are dissolved metals, uh, iron, but more interestingly, economically at least, copper, zinc, lead, silver, and gold uh, that are precipitating around these, these hot springs on the seafloor and building up towering chimneys as much as 40 meters high that that, uh, of course, are unstable and they eventually uh, fall over and produce accumulations of, of chimneys that grow into mounds and produce what, for all intents and purposes, are ore deposits on the, uh, on the ocean floor. How abundant are those ores, Steve? How much of them is, is down there? Well, there's, there's about 350 sites that we know about now and, and in total thousands of these, uh, these so-called hydrothermal vents or, or hot springs some of them are very small. Some of them would fit in, the, in somebody's dining room. Others are, are quite large. Uh, for example, the, uh, the ones in the, uh, in the Bismarck Sea off the east coast of Papua New Guinea, some of those deposits measure a few hundred metres in diameter. So are they actually exploitable? 
because some people have suggested that these particular ore deposits are much are much more enriched than ore that we could get out of the ground normally in a normal mine or something, and therefore they might actually be worth a sort of pillaging to get the goodness out. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think they are exploitable. At least the ones in the Manus Basin, uh, this is actually a site that I discovered back in the 90s, uh, our own sampling, plus the much more detailed sampling by a mining exploration group called Nautilus Minerals, has verified that, that this is incredibly rich. Um, now, the, they took a 15-ton bulk sample out of one of the deposits, and it averaged something like 5.2% copper and 6.6 grams per ton of gold. Now, a typical mine of this type on land, that in volcanic rocks, uh, which we have around the world in various places, and lots of them in Canada, they, they would average maybe maybe 2 to 4% copper and maybe a gram or two of ton of gold. Is it actually economically viable to recover, though? Because whilst it may be richer... Of course, you've got the added problem of a lot of seawater above you. Yeah, you've got a lot of seawater. The, the Manus Basin site, uh, it's in 1,600 to 1,700 metres of water. But, you know, there, there are mines uh, on land that are, that are down 3,000 metres, for example, in, in Timmins, a Kid Creek mine here in Canada. And it's a whole lot easier to go down through a couple of thousand metres of water than a couple of thousand metres of rock. All you have to do is put a pipe down there, whereas on, on land you've got to do a, an awful lot of blasting and drilling. It's very expensive to do. Can you actually do a sort of environmental calculation to work out which is actually better for the planet in the long run? Is, is it better to go down to these pristine marine environments and exploit those, or is it better to do the drilling and, and blasting that you mentioned? I personally think that, it, in fact, it is it, the ocean mining will be less an environmental problem than mining on land. Uh, and it's not a question of out of sight, out of mind, because you know, no one will accept that. The, on, on land, you, you have to dig big holes in the ground. If you have an open cast mine, uh, you've got to remove an awful lot of barren rock to get at the ore. You know, maybe, maybe for every ton of ore, you might have to move five to ten tons of barren rock, and you have to put that rock somewhere. And you're going to leave a big hole behind in the ground. And when it rains, it produces, uh, produces acids from the uh, breakdown of the iron sulfide, makes sulfuric acid, and creates uh, acid mine drainage, which is a, a big problem. In fact, those are the three biggest problems for mining on land. In the oceans, uh, you, you won't generate acid uh, drainage because the oceans are alkaline, so you just simply don't generate the acids. There'll be no big holes in the seabed because these things are sitting like bumps on the seafloor. You're going to remove that bump. It's referred to as surgical mining. You take just the ore, and so you're not removing anywhere waste rock. So the three biggest problems for mining on land don't exist in the oceans. It's Professor Steve Scott, who is the Professor of Ore Genesis at the University of Toronto, telling us how these hydrothermal vents could in the future be a very, very lucrative and very useful source of raw materials for, for instance, minerals and also precious metals. I can't help worrying about the animals that live down there as well. I've got a text message here from Maggie in Beckles, and she asks, why does stress cause anxiety, then palpitations or chest tightness? So I suppose that's one extreme to another. Yes, the reason this happens, Helen, is because when you're stressed, it initiates your body's fight-or-flight reaction, which is when you're preparing to do battle or to run away from something. Oh, right. so adrenaline, yeah. This pumps out loads of adrenaline. Adrenaline... Re- causes your blood vessels in your heart to react. And what it does, in order to get more blood to the rest of the body, the heart increases how hard it pumps and how fast it pumps. And what people are talking about when they say palpitation is the sensation of your heart beating abnormally fast and abnormally hard. So it's all down to adrenaline, and that's really what powers a panic attack. 
Excellent. Well, something I uh, hope isn't happening to you, Maggie, but I hope that helps answer your question. I've got a, an email here from Marlise who says, um, love your podcast. I'm actually listening to it here on my home trainer. I think she means her exercise bike in Switzerland. Is there a way I can prepare myself in advance to risk to avoid the risk of altitude sickness? I'm going to Tibet later in the year and I don't know how my body's going to react. This is really interesting, this, because uh, when you go up a, up a mountain, of course, there's less oxygen. And we've been talking about Everest and we're going to give the answer to our teaser in just a second. But because there's less oxygen, your body says hey, I'm running short of oxygen, I'm going to breathe a lot harder. So your rate of breathing goes up, and unfortunately, whilst this does increase the amount of oxygen in the blood, it decreases the amount of carbon dioxide stored in the blood. And carbon dioxide is a weak acid, and so what this does is make your blood more alkaline, and this is why you feel unwell. So that's why hyperventilating makes you feel giddy, because you lose carbon dioxide. So there is a drug called acetazolamide, which is a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. How that works is it stops your body converting the stored acid back into calm dioxide. And so it keeps your blood a little bit more acidic so you feel better. And also, people in the Andes swear by cocaine, coca tea. Apparently Not works sure very, if we would well. endorse that on the Naked Scientist. But anyway, thanks to everyone who answered our teaser question. And the answer is 69 degrees Celsius. They're basically water boils at a lower temperature because you've got lower air pressure up there. So the water has less to push against, if you like. And our winner is Mark from Cambridge, who got exactly the right answer and also pointed out that it's a little bit weather dependent. Depends what the weather conditions are like as to exactly what temperature it boils at. Thank you, Helen. That's it for this week. Thank you very much to our guests, Lisa Pratt and Crispin Little, and also to the Naked Scientist production team, who are this week Anna Lacey and Ali Webb. Now, next time, we'll be exploring the science of pain, including what chili and tarantulas have in common, how some people inherit genes that prevent them from ever feeling pain, and incidentally, they make great firewalkers, and we'll also be finding out why a hot curry hurts, yet a mouthful of mint makes your breath feel cold. So if you've got any questions for us about that, or or any general science question, or you'd just like to say hello, then we love hearing from you. Please drop us a line. It's chris at nakedscientist.com. In the meantime, do check out the Nature podcast for some more audio scientific stimulation. That's at nature.com forward slash nature forward slash podcast. And if you're in the mood to talk science, our Naked Scientist forum is a thriving hive of scientific intrigue, and it's just waiting to be found at nakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Until next time, from me and from Helen, goodbye! Thank you.